Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Our program today is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, Benefits of CFTR Modification Beyond FEV1 Improvement. With us is that issue's author, Dr. Christopher Goss, Professor in the Division of Pulmonology and Critical Care Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington in Seattle. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to describe the effects of CFTR modulation on nutritional status, evaluate the observational data supporting the impact of CFTR modulation on chronic infection in CF, and summarize the newer advances in understanding the pathophysiology of CF and how CFTR modulation may impact this process. Dr. Goss has disclosed that he has received research grant funding from Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. In addition, he has received honorarium from Gilead Sciences and L. Hoffman LaRoche Limited. His presentation today will not reference the off-label or unapproved use of any drugs or products, with the exception of Adalurin. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Dr. Goss, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to talk today. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed some of the key studies on the effects of CFTR modification in the clinical trials, in real-world usage, and in ongoing research. What I'd like to do today is talk about how that information can translate into actual practice in the clinic. Uh, so start us out, if you would, Doctor, with a patient scenario. I have a patient, she's a 26-year-old female with cystic fibrosis with the following mutations in her CFTR gene, DEL-F508 and G551D. Thus, she is heterozygous for the gating mutation G551D. She has a forced expiratory volume in one second, percent of predicted of 55%, and her body mass index is 19 kilograms per meter squared. She has struggled to maintain her weight with pancreatic enzymes, a high-calorie diet for years. The highest her body mass index has ever been is 20 kilograms per meter squared. The CF Foundation Nutritional Guidelines recommend a body mass index or BMI for women above 22 kilograms per meter squared. And she has now started treatment with the FDA-approved agent Ibacaftor. Her FEV1 is, as you said, currently 55%. Based on the information you presented in your newsletter issue, Dr. Goss, what might this patient anticipate in regards to the impact of Ibacaftor therapy on her lung function? Well, if she is like the average patient in the phase three clinical trial fibacaftor, she will gain 10.4% of her FEV1 over six months. Importantly, similar effects were seen on FEV1 gain in an observational study after patients not previously in the clinical trial started on the drug. So we feel this is probably an accurate reflection of how the drug works in the general population. Uh, And a similar question, doctor. The expected impact of ibacaftor therapy on her nutritional status. Well, again, if, if she is an average patient in the phase three trial fibrocaptor, she will gain about 2.7 kilograms over six months. And importantly, similar effects on weight gain were also seen in an observational study after patients not previously in the clinical trial program started ibacaftor. So the results were really generalizable to the overall population of patients with G551B mutation. Such a degree of weight gain has not been seen in any other drug therapy trial in CF. Now, do the data provide any insight into the mechanism of the weight gain seen with ibacaftor treatment? Well, recent research suggests that the weight gain may be attributable to changes in the gut pH seen with treatment with ibacaftor. So in CF, the proximal bowel pH is lower or more acidic 
than it should be compared to people without CF. Ivacaftor appears to activate channels that permit bicarbonate to be secreted into the proximal small bowel and correct this abnormality, thus allowing pancreatic enzymes to function more normally. We know how important it is to manage patient expectations with any therapy, and in particular with these CFTR modifiers and correctors. So as the treating clinician, what would you tell the patient about what we've just been discussing? That's a great question. What I try to tell patients is that although the average patient in the clinical trial improved both weight and lung function, some patients did not. It's important to know that actually lack of improvement in lung function doesn't indicate lack of clinical benefit. When the studies were reevaluated, those who had large improvements in sweat chloride didn't necessarily have large improvements in lung function. But on average, they can anticipate lower rates of pulmonary exacerbation and improved quality of life. But again, some of the important endpoints like weight and slash nutritional status and lung function may vary by patients. So we need to caution them so they can anticipate that this is actually the results of the trials suggest what's the average improvement, not what each patient can anticipate. Going back to the patient you described, how long has she been on Ivacaftor therapy? Well, she's now been on the therapy for nine months and has been tolerating it extremely well. And in those nine months, what results has she shown in regard to lung function, nutritional status, the frequency of her exacerbations? In these last nine months since she's been on the therapy, she's had an improvement of her lung function of about 8%, which she was very happy with. And she had more importantly, a, a rapid improvement in her weight, and she actually gained over three kilograms of weight. And then I think, which was even more startling, she had a tremendous, tremendous drop in her rate of exacerbation. She has not had a pulmonary exacerbation since starting the therapy after having on average two to four a year in the prior three years. So it has markedly improved her quality of life. Well, thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Christopher Goss from the University of Washington in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www. E-cysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews 
help them keep up to date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive e-cystic fibrosis review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, managing editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Christopher Goss from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle. And we're talking about the benefits of CFTR modification beyond FEV1 improvement. So let's continue, if you would, doctor, with another patient scenario. I have another patient as a 30-year-old male with cystic fibrosis with the following mutations in his CFTR gene, which is f 508 and G551D. And thus, he is heterozygous with the gating mutation G551D. And he has a forest excretory volume in one second, percent of predicted of 72% predicted. And importantly, he has grown Pseudomonas aeruginosa in his sputum each time it's been cultured for the last five years. And he's also grown both what are termed mucoid and non-mucoid isolates of Pseudomonas in his sputum. He has now been treated with the FDA-approved agent Ivacaftor for the last year, and he's noted marked improvement in his cough and sputum production and a significant improvement in his FEV1 percent of predicted. Provide us with a frame of reference, if you would please, doctor. How does his improvement match what was seen in the clinical trials of Ivacaftor? This patient had improvement that was very similar to what has been observed in the phase three clinical trial program. And notably, the marked reduction in cough, change in his sputum production, and improvement in his lung function as measured by FEV1. So he has really, in many ways, mirrored the results of the Phase three program. Were there any unexpected effects of Ivacaftor therapy that were noted in this patient? Yeah, there is one thing that is quite unusual in this patient, that he seems to have not cultured Pseudomonas in his follow-up. Now, he has cultured Pseudomonas every time we've cultured him in the last five years, and he appears to be no longer positive for Pseudomonas originosa. Now, this actually corresponds to some new data that suggests patients with single or two CFTR mutations for G551D that are treated with Ivacaftor can have sputum cultures that are no longer positive for Pseudomonas originosa. This was noted in an observational study that was done after the approval of Ivacaftor. This feature, the fact that patients that use the drug has been shown to be associated with loss of mucoid and non-mucoid isolates of Pseudomonas aeruginosa is quite intriguing. Now, it's, it's unclear whether this is a true loss of lower airway chronic infection or just a change in our ability to detect lower airway infection. The patients certainly cough less and have markedly reduced amount of sputum production as this patient did. And so that may change our ability to detect these bacteria. But it is an intriguing result. We've been focusing on Pseudomonas, which is important because that's the most common pathogen infecting CF patients. But has Ivacaftor therapy been associated with any other changes in the microbiology of patient sputum? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and the, the observational study did indeed find changes in other microbiology. Importantly, aspergillus, which is commonly cultured from CF sputum, has been noted to be cultured less frequently after initiation of ivacaftor. Aspergillus is a fungus that's commonly found in our environment, and it's commonly seen in the sputum cultures of patients with cystic fibrosis. And again, it's unclear if this represents true changes in lower airway infection and colonization with aspergillus or our ability to detect it based on changes in sputum production and cloth. 
Other common infections in CF were also evaluated and looked for, and they did not change. And these included organisms like Staphylococcus aureus, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, Haemophilus influenza, and the Burkholderia cepatia complex organisms. Uh, doctor, let me ask you, do any of these new data elucidate the causes of lung function in patients with CF? This is a great question, and I think there are some new and quite exciting data about potentially the early stages of CF lung disease. And they come from recent animal models in cystic fibrosis. So the group at the University of Iowa has created a pig with cystic fibrosis, and now they've been able to fairly definitively show that there may be two key defects in host defense in small piglets that have CF. The first defect, which is quite interesting, is that they seem to have an alkalinization of the airway lining fluid. And this is the fluid that lines the large airways. And in the setting of CFTR deficient pigs, these are pigs without any CFTR, the fluid is more acidic than it should be. And that can lead to inactivating these small molecules called antimicrobial peptides that help humans kill bacteria that land in the lung. So with this more acidic environment, they seem not to be able to kill the bacteria that enter the lung spontaneously when piglets are born and also when they're living. Second, there may be a really important defect in how mucus is released from the mucus glands. And they term this tethering of the mucus to the mucus glands. So in the pigs that are deficient in CFTR, the mucus doesn't release from the gland and causes a long tethering phenomena. And that tethering can create pontoons of mucus that don't move with the normal mucociliary clearance. So the new data really suggests that there may be two important host defects in CF, at least in the CF pig, and that is impaired bacteria killing because of mucus tethering, but also impaired bacteria killing because of changes in the airway lining fluid pH, meaning too acidic. And they did a nice job really sort of outlining this in their animal models, really suggesting that these may be the earliest defects that lead to CF lung disease. One of the big questions that came up with these findings from the animal models is, could you correct these defects? And the investigators did an interesting experiment where they normalized the pH of the airway fluid. And in doing so, they normalized the CF pig's lining fluid's ability to kill bacteria. So this suggests that actually potentially modifying CFTR or activating CFTR could change the host defect in a way that they could actually kill bacteria that they've not been able to kill otherwise. So again, this was a very intriguing finding, and it suggests that there may be alternative effects of these medications that we have yet to fully understand. Doctor, we know the data isn't there yet, but let me ask you to speculate about how these findings may actually apply to human patients with CF. Well, I think it has two important implications. The first is the one question that we would all love answering is, could we prevent early infection and CF lung disease in children by merely correcting their CFTR defect? And again, that question is unanswered, but I think it's very intriguing. Clearly, having bacteria in your lungs as a young child is part of the integral process of airway inflammation and airway destruction that leads to bronchiectasis and CF. And the second aspect is, could we modify with these drugs 
the current infection of patients with existing lung disease, and again, this is still unanswered, but some of the data that we've talked about today suggests that maybe these drugs do have impact on host effects that can actually change the bacterial colonization in these patients. So I think those are two important questions that have yet to be answered, but could be very intriguing. So by correcting CFTR, can we reverse some of these chronic infections that these patients have that we traditionally can't get rid of? Uh, let's go back a moment to that finding you were talking about, about a more acidic pH in the lungs. What investigations have been done to normalize the pH in the fluid lining of the airways uh, with or without using a CFTR modifier? Certainly, there have been some preliminary investigations of using a common alkalizer, which is bicarbonate, to see if it could change the pH of the airway. And preliminary investigations of nebulizing bicarbonate have not demonstrated any benefit. So that approach, I think, is not appropriate. It still remains to be seen whether Ivacaftor and drugs like Ivacaftor are indeed alkalizing the airway lining fluid of patients with CF who are treated with these drugs. And again, I think the hope is that these drugs will change the pH of the lining fluid and potentially alter their microbiology. Interesting discussion, doctor. Thank you. And now let me ask you to bring us one more patient scenario, if you would, please. This patient is a 44-year-old female with cystic fibrosis with the following mutations in her CFTR gene, which is DEL-F508 homozygous. So she has two DEL-F508 gene defects. And this is the most common mutation in patients with cystic fibrosis. She has a forced x-ray volume in one second, percent predicted of 35% of predicted, which is severely reduced. And she does airway clearance twice a day, and she uses hypertonic saline, which is 7% sodium chloride solution. And she nebulizes that twice a day. And she also inhales pulmazine at 2.5 milligrams nebulized once a day. And she uses both the hypertonic saline and the pulmazine, given their clinical benefit has been demonstrated in CF in phase three trials. She does also exercise regularly for part of her care. So this is a patient, homozygous, as you said, for F508 DEL, with an FEV1 that's pretty low, it's 35%, and she's been doing everything right to treat it. But now, Ivacaftor has not been shown to be effective in patients homozygous for F508 DEL. So what are the possible treatments for this patient? That's correct. Ivacaftor has not been shown to be helpful in patients who have two Delta F508 mutations. However, I believe the era of CFTR modulation therapy is here for such patients. We are increasingly looking to mutation-specific therapies. And just as of May, a phase three study of Ibacaftor combined with another agent called Lumacaftor was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and showing that they had statistically significant improvement in lung function and also statistically significant and large effect on reducing the rate of pulmonary exacerbations. I think this is a very interesting era for patients with CF, and there are a number of drugs in the pipeline moving forward to target every single gene defect that is now seen in CF by classification. I want to note to our listeners that the combination of Ivacaftor with Lumacaftor was recently FDA-approved specifically for patients ages 12 and older who have two copies of the F508 DEL mutation. That's correct. Based on your knowledge of the ongoing research, Dr. Goss, what are some of the other non-pulmonary benefits of CFTR modulation that will likely be investigated? 
Well, that, that's a great question, and I think there's a lot of potential. CF is a multi-systemic disease that affects the pancreas, the gut, and well beyond the respiratory tract. There's some intriguing evidence from case reports, the use of CFTR modulation, specifically Ivacaftor, in reversing some of these defects that were thought to be irreversible. There have been reports that treatment with Ivacaftor could improve pancreatic function in a pancreatic insufficient patient. Again, that is felt to be something that's irreversible. And the other phenomenon that's been noted in small case series is improvement in glucose modulation with insulin. Um, both pancreatic insufficiency and CF-related diabetes are important complications of the disease that have big effects on the patient's health. So if these drugs could indeed modulate these secondary effects of CF, it would be quite an important finding. And again, I think these are some of the potential avenues that we have to investigate to look for what I term off-target effects of these agents. It's important to know that the new combination therapy, Ivacaptor and Lumacaptor, have not clearly demonstrated that they have some of the suggested effects on microbiology that Ivacaptor had alone, although the studies were not designed specifically to look at the effects of these drugs on microbiology. So I think this data will be forthcoming whether it does or doesn't affect the host interaction with bacteria. It's important to know that what I've talked about today included patients with gating mutations and those with G551D and then those that are homozygous for Del F508. But I haven't talked about stop mutations, and these are mutations where the CFTR is truncated during read-through. There is one agent currently in phase three trials, Adaluron, which hopes to be beneficial for those with stop mutations. And again, we anxiously await the results of that trial. Well, thank you, doctor, for sharing your insights. Let's wrap things up by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, the effects of CFTR modulation on nutritional status. The podcast discusses how CFTR modulation can change the pH in the proximal small bowel, increasing the pH to more closely approximate a normal non-CF pH. The information likely explains the significant gains in weight seen in the clinical trials and the observational studies of Ivacaptor. This novel CFTR-modulated drug is now approved by the FDA. And our second learning objective, the impact of CFTR modulation on chronic infection in CF. Recent observational data suggests that drugs that modulate CFTR can impact rates of chronic infection in CF. The podcast notes a case that highlights the potential for a subset of patients to no longer have Pseudomonas aeruginosa or Aspergillus cultured from their sputum after treatment with Ivacaptor. And finally, what the newer data is showing about the pathophysiology of CF and how CFTR modulation can impact this process. The podcast discusses some of the novel data from the CF pig model that may really shed light into how CF patients develop chronic lower airway infections. And these include the two primary defects that were noted. One was the acidification of the airway lining fluid in the CF pig, and the other was the tethering of mucus from the mucus glands. This may allow infections to brew chronically and then eventually lead to bronchiectasis that we see in CF. These defects could explain the airway injury that we see in CF patients from childhood through adulthood, that is the development of bronchiectasis. 
Dr. Christopher Goss from the University of Washington, thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, it's been a real pleasure spending time with you today talking about these new advances, and I want to thank you and your audience for this opportunity to participate. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. 